0: Uh, open your Bibles, if you would, uh, to the book of Samuel, First Samuel, chapter 7. Uh, ask as you're turning there, you would, uh, pray for my family. Uh, the kids have been sick this week, and so it's finally running through the last one at this point, with the Myra, which may be the worst one so far. Um, that girl, I can tell you, the Lord's testing me and growing me. Amen. Amen. Uh, one of the major themes of the Bible is this idea uh, of always having before us two choices. Either on the one hand, we will believe God and take Him at His word and, and, and live the way and the kind of life that He wants us to live, or we won't. Um, these are the two choices. There's not a middle option. Right? Psalm 1 begins by talking about uh, the, the man who uh, walks in the way of sinners, right, stands in the counsel of the ungodly, uh, that, that and sits in the seat of the scornful, right, that those people are enemies of the Lord, and their lives will burn up like the chaff with fire, but then it contrasts the, that kind of person with the person who uh, meditates on the law of the Lord, right, and, and what's to say about that person? It says that that his life will be like a tree planted beside uh, streams of living water. Right, All through the scripture, we have this idea uh, that that all of humanity are either in two people, represented in two people. Either folks are uh, being represented before God in Adam, which isn't a good thing. It's not a good thing, right? So if you are in Adam, what that means is that you are still a part of fallen humanity, that you stand before God condemned. Right? There was this interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees uh, where uh, he says, hey, look, look, I didn't come to condemn you. Well, that sounds like good news, doesn't it? Until you read the next line. Why didn't Jesus come to condemn? Because all of humanity is already already standing condemned before God. A holy God. And so Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn. I, I, come, I came to provide salvation and a way of escape for you. And so like there's all these two choices. Either we're in Adam, or as Paul would say, that we are in Christ, right? One of the, the most beautiful phrases, the propositional phrases in all of the New Testament, this two words, in Christ. Uh, Ephesians uh, would walk us through that, that it's in Christ that we are adopted. It's in Christ that we have forgiveness. It's in Christ that we uh, have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right. If, if you are in Christ, what that means is that you're a child of God. That you've been empowered by the Spirit of God to walk as God would have you in life. These are the two choices before us. And the same is what we see in, in, in the book of Samuel it's so far. So far, uh, what have we seen of all the different... Think about it chapters 1 through 7. Let me give you a a brief rundown. Uh, Chapter 1, what we find? We find the story of of Hannah, a woman who cannot have kids, and in those days often thought that this was a judgment of God upon you. Uh, She couldn't have kids, and yet she's the only character we see in the story who actually seeks the face of the Lord, right? And you get chapter 2, you get Hannah's prayer, which is echoed in the New Testament, and uh, by the words of, of Mary, as she's speaking to the Lord after getting news that she will be the one who would bring the Savior into the world. And so you, Hannah, you get the story of Hannah who seems to bring uh, this God-fearing, this God- walking person, this person who wants to be like the Lord. But the priest, Eli, his two sons, what do we know about them? The, the, the Bible says that these are wicked men before the Lord. You'll notice that there's not, there's not two, there's, there's only two options. There's not a third option for all the characters. You can do this with the whole Scripture, by the way. As you read it, you should be reading the Old Testament. Was, let me give you a helpful way of reading the Old Testament. A helpful way to read the Old Testament is to read it like, is this, is this a good guy or a bad guy? You say, well, that sounds childish. It is, and it's great. And actually, it's how the stories of the Scripture are meant to shape us in our lives today. Is this someone who we should emulate or, 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 or do the, the opposite of? Right? That's how we should read the Old Testament. So, Eli and his sons are, are men who we would not want to copy. And so, then you get the, 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 the nation of Israel really gets represented in chapters 4 through chapter 6, right, with the ark of the Lord. Right? The, you have this, this, this kind of breakout. In chapters uh, 5 and 6, you have no mention of Samuel. And even in chapter 4, no mention of Samuel's name, who's been the, 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 the pinnacle of chapters 1 through 3, right? The whole story is about Samuel. Right? Chapters 1 through 3, you've got the birth of Samuel, born to Hannah, uh, raised in Eli's house in the fear of the Lord. Right? He's growing in stature. And the New Testament will also echo, echo some of the language of Samuel by saying uh, that he grew uh, in stature and, and grew in godliness. And it actually says the same thing about Jesus. Therefore, Samuel becomes for us this type of Messiah, this type of picture of what it means to look for in the New Testament when we're looking for Jesus. But then you get the, the nation of Israel in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Uh, and these are, these are people who you wouldn't want to emulate. Right? Like these are, they seem to make a talisman or this, uh, this magic uh, wonder of this box called the Ark of the Lord. And they think that if we have that, man, we're, 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 we're good. We're good. Nothing to fear. Because they lost a the battle. They go get the Ark. And then uh, uh, wonder of wonders, even with the Ark of the God, this talisman, or so they thought, they lost The battle. And the point of the story then that we kind of looked at last week is that whether you're the Philistines who openly disrespect and disobey God or you call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a child of God and still disobey the Lord, who can stand before a holy God? But what we see in chapter 7 is the story begins to shift. The story begins to shift. Look at it with me in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kirath jerim a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel... Remember, at the end of chapter 3, Samuel is doing what, if you remember? Samuel is teaching the people the word of the Lord. It's been years and years and decades and decades with no word from the Lord because of Israel's uh, disobedience and uh, breaking of the covenant with the Lord Yahweh. And so in Samuel, we see this return of the the word of the Lord, right? Out of the period of the judges and into the period of the prophets, Samuel stands as uh, as the lighthouse, beginning to draw people back to this covenant and faithful God. So that's what we see at the end of chapter 3. Here, the beginning of chapter 7, Samuel says uh, to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they serve the Lord only. So I only have two points in my sermon and then I will get out your way because uh, today is my wife's birthday uh, and so she's dealing with sick kids so I want to preach this text, give you Jesus and then get out your way. So point number one uh, in this sermon that I've called A Call to Repentance is you, you, we have two aspects, two points uh, of what do we do, how do we relate to God and point number one is you must look to God. Look to God, in this text, twenty years have passed since what? Since the battle of chapter four, where the Israelites lost to the Philistines the first time. Twenty years. The, the is in the chapter six. We're told it's about nine months that the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant, and then in that time, they're thinking, "Well, golly, like Israel, like God has been captured, right?" They believe their God was in a box, and that the box had been captured, and God is nowhere. After about nine months, the ark comes back. We see the people of Bethshemesh at the end of chapter six get wiped out, and here they are lamenting, lamenting after the Lord twenty years. And here we see Samuel reappear, as if uh, um, almost as if like you're not expecting him. Like if you're reading the story for the first time, you'd be like oh wait. Oh yeah, this story is about Samuel. We just went through three chapters of Samuel, three chapters of no Samuel. Samuel's back. This is important, by the way. The author's doing something here. But what we see uh, in this first verses of chapter 7 is a new beginning is being made between Samuel and Israel. Samuel begins to take the central role for which he was being prepared in chapters 1 through 3. A role that is very much like the role of Moses. Moses, who would save the people out of Egypt and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness and call on them to look to God. Israel is beginning to take a role, a fresh role, constituted people in covenant with the Lord, and now summoned to obey the commands of Yahweh. Think about it. There were people, 20 years had passed. 20 years. There had have been children grown up to become grown men, young women who had, or young ladies who had grown up to be, or young girls who had grown up to be young ladies. And all they knew about following the Lord was this posture of lamenting. Lamenting. But now with verse uh, 4 or verse 3, they begin to become, uh, they're now summoned back. To what? To, to obey the commands of of Yahweh, you, you see, the most important command that, that Israel is given in this text is that they must put away and have no other gods. Right? Look, look again at verse three. It says, "If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth, which, by the way, is just a, another name God among uh, the Canaanites, among this religion." And, and they're being told, "Put them away from among you. Direct your heart." To the Lord. Serve Him only. You see, Samuel is urging Israel to return to Yahweh with all of their heart. The heart being the organ of commitment. This this picture of loyalty. And Israel is to have a single heart. A single loyalty devoted only to the Lord. In a sense, what, what Samuel has done here in this command given to the Israelite people is he, he's called them back to the core claim of the writings of Moses and the law. Like if you asked Moses, what does covenantal faith look like? He would reply to you, love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul, with all your might. And this is what he would have said. This is what covenantal faithfulness Looks like, And so, verse 3, what Samuel is doing to the people of of Israel in in his day, in his time, is saying the same thing that Moses said to the children of Israel. He's echoing this idea, like, turn to the Lord. Stop looking to the left. Stop looking to the right. Look to the Lord only. Stop placing your faith and hope in other things. In other words, the call that Samuel is placing on the children of Israel is that in the face of Philistine threat, in the face of Canaanite culture, in the presence of a Canaanite pagan religion, in the presence of all of that, they must put their hope squarely in the Lord. That's not where they were, right? The children of Israel, in this day, they were beginning to mix their faith in Yahweh and their loyalty to Yahweh alone with other loyalties and other alternatives that seemed to be more attractive, more compelling, more rewarding. Israel has been tempted again and again to move slightly from their central loyalty to Yahweh. And notice that these weren't changes like overnight. These were slow, progressive changes. Small steps, little by little. You can worship Yahweh, but, but why don't you also... Worship this. Why don't you also begin to put your hope and trust in your 401k, Israel? Like like what if we put our security, like what if instead of just always, you know, we can rely on the Lord, but what if what if we just build some walls for some security? There's this slow progression. Out of God here, out of God there. You don't have to stop worshiping Yahweh, still worship the God Yahweh. But then also, what about all these other things? Israel is also tempted to change its mode of ethics. Like, right, they begin to act different. As they worship different, they act different. This is important, by the way. Anytime there's a slide of morality in a people group, you can be sure that there has first been a slide in what that people is worshiping. Samuel is called here by God to call Israel back to its primary loyalty, to its single reliance, and to shun all other modes of life, security, security and well-being. The demand of Samuel was is that Israel belong only to Yahweh and no other. The promise then at the end of verse 3 is that if the people will do this, then the Lord is able and will deliver his people. Again, the call of Samuel is echoing the call of Moses' call to Israel at Sinai, where, where Moses said this, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the, the words Moses told Israel. But then it also, it's a, it's a summons of Joshua Shechem. When, when Joshua again is calling the people of Israel, he says this, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods in your, that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, Israel has a choice to make. They can choose to decide and and follow God, to believe God at His Word and follow Him, no matter what may come or to not. They can begin to slowly drift, theological drift, and begin to put their hope and trust in other things. And what we see for the first time in this story is Israel begins to get what the Lord's saying. See, Israel must decide again for covenantal faithfulness against all other modes of peace, all other modes of prosperity. Think about this story as, as, as place yourself in this text. What does the Lord, what does the Holy Spirit want you to see in this text? Is the call on you, Christian, to follow the Lord to put away other gods from among you, and then the Lord will deliver you? That's how a lot of people preach this text. But as followers of Jesus, we must realize that this call on Israel is important for us, but different for us. You see, can, we cannot simply or merely read this text and go like, oh, Israel had to look to the Lord, follow the Lord, put their hope squarely in the Lord, and therefore we should go and do likewise. Likewise. We can't merely say that. And here's where I want to help you. One of the most helpful things you can do when reading Old Testament passages like this, where Israel is commanded and then they have the choice whether to obey or not, I want you to remember this one very simple fact that maybe you've never thought of. Jesus read this passage. Think about it. As a young boy, Jesus read this passage. He loved these passages. He loved the entire Old Testament. He grew up reading these passages and seeing Israel time and again. Sometimes they would follow the Lord and sometimes they wouldn't follow the Lord. And there was this vicious cycle. And Jesus read this passage and said, okay, okay, in my life I must follow the Lord, put away other gods, have no other loyalty. That's how Jesus read these passages. And listen, He lived it. He lived it. At no point did your Savior ever have any other loyalty to anyone except Yahweh. You see, this command on Israel should have been the position of all of our lives, but if we're honest, it's often not, is it? Like the children of Israel, we struggle we begin to get off course. We, we begin to set our eyes and fix our eyes on other things. But not Jesus. Jesus never had to put away other gods, for He never, never worshipped other gods. You see, where Israel failed time and again, it, Jesus would stand. Jesus was the true Israel. He never mixed His faith. So we cannot jump from the, the command given to the Israelites and just begin to apply it to ourselves as if, as, as if it'll work. Like, think about it. How many times have you ever sinned in your life and be like, ah, you know what? This time I'm putting away other gods. This way I'm putting away everything else. I'm going to be faithful to the Lord only. How many times have you ever said that in your hand? Just go ahead and raise your hand if you've said that. Anybody? Okay, some of you are honest, the rest of you are liars. It's okay, we're in church, you can repent afterwards. Like all of us at one point or another have looked at God's commands and looked at our lives and said, these don't line up. I need to again return to the Lord. But Jesus never did. Jesus always, for our sake, he became righteous where we would never become righteous. Jesus is the fulfillment of this text. And then, now by the Spirit, he calls us back to this text and says, now do it. Not in your own strength, but in the strength that he supplies. You see, the difference between us and the Israelites is Israelites would never have what it took to put their faith fully in the Lord. They would time and time again fail, and so will we. The difference is that we're on this side of the New Testament. We know what Jesus has done. We know that He uh, took on our uh, sinfulness so that we could take on His righteousness. We stand before a holy God. The end of chap- this question at the end of chapter 6. We stand before a holy God only in Christ. So the first is look to God. Number two, now i get out your way. Cry to God. Look at verse 5. Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease. Like, don't stop. Continue to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. All the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth You see, in this text we have Philistines attacking in verse 7, and, but in verse, uh, verse 11, 10 and 11 the, the enemy is defeated, and the question for us is what happens in the middle? It's important to understand that this text is not primarily about the Philistines. The story of the attacking Philistines and their ultimate defeat is merely the setting and the context for which we find the true meaning of this story, which is what happens between Israel and Samuel and the Lord. Look at verse 8. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of of the Philistines. What we find in this verse is some of the most fundamental words, the fundamental terms of what faith is. Do you see it? Israel is talking to Samuel and says, Do not cease to what? To cry. Cry out to the Lord that He may what? Save us. This idea of crying and being saved. This is the single sentence. If we were to boil faith down to a single sentence, it would be that you cry that God would save you. That's the story. That's the sentence. That's faith in a nutshell. And so this is what Samuel does. He cries out. And as promised in verse 3, God hears, answers, and acts. The Philistines are defeated. Israel is delivered. Samuel is vindicated. And God has once again been faithful. his people. At the beginning of this story, the Philistines are strong, threatening, menacing, and the Israelites are fearful, intimidated, and cowering. At the end of the story, the Philistines are defeated, and Israel is safe once again. But again, look back at verse 8. The people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. That he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord. There it is. He cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Do you see this pattern? It's one of crying out followed by an answer. Verse 8, do not cease to cry that he may save. Verse 9, Samuel cried out, Yahweh answered. It is this pattern of crying and answering that we have the very core of what biblical faith is. This is what faithfulness of God's people looks like. Crying out to God is to acknowledge and put your trust in God. Not relying on yourself or anything else. There's two ways you stand before the Lord. The one is this picture. This is the proper human response before a a holy God. The other one is you put your faith in anything else. You put your trust in anything else. You rely on anything else and you are opposing God to his face. Samuel here is acting on behalf of the people of Israel in an act of repentance, an act of acknowledgement. This means that for the fir- one of the first times in the entire book, seven chapters, it's taken us to get to this point where we see God's people rightly relating to God. We've had glimpses of it so far in Hannah and Samuel, but now for the first time we're seeing it begin to play out and mass of what His people should be doing. And we not only see the people crying out, but we see then the Lord answering. He, he answered. God is faithful. God is attentive. Jesus said, everyone who asks will receive. And I wonder if Jesus, when he was teaching uh, his disciples in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, that it, when you ask, then you will receive. I wonder, as he was teaching them, if he was thinking of this story and many countless other stories like it. This story teaches us that the character of God is to faithfully attend to the genuine need of His faithful people. Now, notice this doesn't even make sense in this story, right? If, if you were at war with an enemy who's already defeated you twice 20 years ago, what would your response be? Would you rally the troops? Would you begin to save, like, hide the women and children? Like, get the people, get the the guards up. Begin to stand up communication. Begin to plan and scheme and connive and figure out a way in which, how are we going to not get defeated again? This type of prayer does not make sense. Prayer which sees what's in front of you, but wholly and truly turns to the Lord to ask Him for help. It didn't make sense for Samuel or Israel here, As they see the armies approaching, shouldn't they have been planning? Shouldn't they have been taking shelter? Shouldn't they have been doing anything else besides prayer? But this is what we find them doing. We find them praying. Listen, prayer is a scandal in our world. We live in a day and age of so much information, so much uh, planning, so much that, that like within seconds of posting an answer on social, or a question on social media, you can have answers. You can have a 10-step ten, ten action plan to go from bankrupt to billionaire very quickly. And yet, what we see time and time again in the scriptures is God's people turning to Him in prayer. And then the outcome, of course, is that this prayer, of the prayers that, that God answers with Thunder. There's, no, there's nothing in this story about like the Lord fought at all, like the, the Israelites fought at all. They merely prayed. The Lord spoke through the thunder. He shook the heavens and the earth, and the Philistines began to become confused. And they, it says that they just merely lost the battle. There in verse 10. They were defeated before Israel. So then we see verse 12 to 17. This is summary of what, what, what happens. Look at verse 12. Samuel took a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Sheen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Raman, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. You see, what we see, this conclusion. What happens when you look to God? What happens when you cry out to God? Blessing. Security. Safety. Well-being. The Israelites begin after a period of 20 years of lamenting. Now they enter into a season of safety and well-being. The Philistines were either unable or unwilling to keep battling with them. All the days of Samuel. The focus here again returns to Samuel. Samuel's words assert the reality and the surprising victory that the Lord helped him in verse 12. When he says, he stands up this rock and names it Ebenezer and says, he gives us some interpretation. He says, For till now the Lord has helped us. Like he's he's saying, like we didn't win this battle by ourselves. It's only by the Lord. In Samuel, what we have as, as, as the church reads this passage, what we have is Samuel becomes a picture and a type for us of what Christ will do for us. You see, in this passage, Samuel has acted as, as, uh, as the, uh, a prophet. He's speaking God's word. He's calling people back to the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He, he not only acts as a prophet, he also acts as a priest when he sacrifices the lamb like he, he's, he's going before the Lord. He's sacrificing the lamb. And he's saying, Lord, would you hear your people cry out and save them? And listen, that's exactly what Jesus does. Only Jesus doesn't sacrifice the lamb. He sacrifices himself. Which is what all the pictures of sacrifice in the Old Testament were pointing to. They were pointing to the, the lamb of life who, who would come, who would lay down his life for his people. But then we also see at the end of the passage here, we see Samuel acting as a judge or a ruler or a king. Friends, right now, right now, Jesus is reigning. He is king of this world. He is ruling over all the intimate details of your life. So we come back to where we began, which is there are two ways in which people can live in this life. You can believe that. Follow it. Put your hope and trust in Christ, and then all the days of your life, continue to put away sin. Continue to put away the gods that you begin to uh, build up in your life. That whatever it may be, put those away. Put your hope again in Christ. Repent again for all of your sins. Come before the Lord. Listen, He's faithful and just to forgive us. Or not. Or not. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for your word. As we think of the people of Israel, think of Samuel, the Philistines, think of our own lives and of Jesus Christ. And we weigh our lives in the balance. We can either trust in you, cry out to you, put our hope in in you, or we can ignore, we can harden our hearts, we can turn away today, this very day, we can turn our hearts away from you and decide we're gonna do it ourselves. Father, I pray that right now we would begin to repent of the sins and the other gods that we have acquired in our lives, that we would put away from them, put away from us all of those other things on which we put our trust, our faith, our security, our our hope, all of it, that we would put it away and that we would return again to the Lord. Today that we would make a fresh commitment in our hearts to be of one mind, one heart. Knowing that Jesus fulfilled this, he did it for us, and now by the power of the Spirit, he's enabling us to live this kind of life. To live as your people in your world. Lord, we need your help. Pray you help us with this and so much more. In Jesus' name, amen.